was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am back again with star of Broadway and Cabaret, Christine Andreas. So, without further ado, here she is. Okay, hit me. What you got? So, I guess I want to start by asking you about Stardust. Which, um, so, ah, how did so you, how did you first become involved with this? Well, I was approached by the, the producer who just offered me a part in it and, uh, Mitchell Parrish songs. And it just seemed interesting, you know, and they were going to do these Airte costumes, which if you know Airte, it's these monster, you know, art deco looking things. I had one dress that was... Also, they were all they all weighed a ton because they were all beaded, and this one had a big because they were all based on these 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 etching etchings. What what would you call them that Erte did? Uh, I'm so silly I should know, but anyway, these beautiful pictures renderings that he did, and one and and they were fantastical, you know, and these were the costumes they were designing. The costume designer was pretty magical too, but this one dress. I just remember, you asked me how I got involved. I'll tell you about the dress in a minute. I got involved because the producer asked me, and I said yes. And I was working with Betty Buckley, Karen Ziemba, and Hinton Battle were the major stars with me. Um, And Hinton was this beautiful dancer. Karen was on her way to the top. You know, beautiful dancer, wonderful performer. And Betty's Betty, you know, very gifted, you know, very very much who she is in song, you know? And she and I, it was a little bit of a ego battle going on there, I have to admit, but uh, I, I made peace with it. Yeah. It was a good time. It was, it was uh, I don't think it was the most creative show I've ever done, but, but it was, it, I, I usually always have fun, you know, and I did. This one dress though, this dress almost killed me. It, had, it was completely form-fitting, and then it had this thing at the back of all these colored ostrich feathers. I called it, forgive me, the ass of flame. Because <laughs> that's what it was like. And I had to, in the number, it was Stairway to the Stars. this great song. And I had to climb a series of stairs with this thing behind me that threw all your balance off. And you had a big high heel. Anyway, I managed. I never fell. But, you know, it was, I should have had hazard pay. Um, so it was a nice time, you know, uh, I don't think Mac was here yet. I don't think it was past, he was born in 87, so I'm pretty sure it was before that, like 84 or 5, something like that. Anyway, it was a short little, you know, it didn't come to New York, uh, it closed out of town, and I don't remember why, but that's that. It happens. Yeah. What, was there talk of it coming to New York? Or... Oh, sure. We, were, we thought we were coming in. 
So I want to ask you about Fields of Ambrosia, which you did in... Oh, that'll take a long time. That'll take <laughs> a long time. <laughs> what do you want to know? So this was, for those who don't know, written by your husband. So mm -hmm. had you already met at that time or did you meet doing this? That's how we met. Yes. Uh, my husband worked with a guy named Joel Higgins, who was my curly in Oklahoma after Larry Guitard left. And uh, they've been writing together for many years. They had a jingle company together. They had done a lot of things. And I should have met Marty during Oklahoma because he was Joel's buddy and he was there several times, but I never met him. And they wrote this piece. And at the time I was doing a Martian Norman play at the George Street Playhouse in New Jersey. Uh, when they approached me, he sent me a cassette and a script, and he said, you know, would you consider doing a reading of this show? And I didn't get to it for about a week and a half, maybe even two weeks, because I was in tech rehearsal for this play, and it was kind of complicated. And my Marty at the time just went, she doesn't like it. She doesn't like it. We should just forget about her. You know, she's Joel. She's not getting back to us. I said, move on, move on, Joel, move on. And they did. They moved on to uh, another girl another actress, and one night at the end of all the tech rehearsals, I finally relaxed. We had a big celebratory, you know, kind of uh, everybody in the cast of that show at George Street. We all had too many margaritas. I, I poured myself into the bus going back to New York and put on my headset and listened to this show, and it blew my brain. It was so beautiful, fully sung through, so gorgeous. And I called Joel and I said, I'm in, I'm in. And he said, well, too late. We got somebody else. And he went, what do you mean you got somebody else? He said, well, we have this other actress. And she, I said, Joel, you'll just have to kill her. And he said, anyway, it all worked out because the, the show ended up conflicting with her schedule. She was doing a Broadway show and, um, and I moved into the part. And it goes on and on and on how I wouldn't, I was so excited by, by the score. It's fully sung through. It's like an opera. It's beautiful. And I was so excited by it that I would I would go into work with Marty and, and I would never sing. I would I would say, teach me the next part. I did this three times. I wouldn't sing for him. I wasn't I what I mean I would have sung for him, but I knew what I knew. I didn't want to sing that. I wanted to learn the whole thing and it was complicated, big score. And after the third time and I didn't sing, he looked at Joel and said, he said, This is Marty, right? You, she can't sing. She can't sing anymore, Joel. She hasn't sung for me. And <laughs> the next time I went in, I just let it rip. And Joel just went, mm, see, yeah. So uh, we did a reading of it, and I ended up getting them a, a, a run at the George Street because I had just worked there. They needed, a, they, we were just doing a concert version, which is what you do when you want to bring awareness to your project. You know, you do a concert version, you invite a lot of important people, they see this show, and hopefully they'll give you a place to do it, right? It also gives you a chance to see what you've got. So that's the first thing we did, step one with Fields, and that's how I met Marty, uh, Silvestri, my husband, and now husband. Um, and then we moved uh, to the George Street because of the connection. It was all, what was amazing about Fields was the synchronicity of it. Like one thing seemed to lead to another. And I was in from the ground floor. That hadn't really happened for me. I mean, yeah, a little bit in the other shows, but not like this. Um, and then... So we did it at George Street, and in a blizzard, we broke all box office records. We opened in a blizzard. Yeah. And in one of the previews, I remember, uh, I had a turntable, a big turntable, and it broke one night. 
And so we had to say to the audience, you know, we're really sorry, it's broken, we can't, we couldn't repair it, so you can leave if you'd like. And they didn't want to go. So we did this whole performance just like on chairs, you know, sitting in chairs. And as we warmed to doing, because we needed rehearsal, it was still preview, we needed more rehearsal, and we needed the time. And as we kept getting into it further and further, we were really acting it out because in our heads, we knew what was happening when everything was working on the stage and the audience just went standing ovation. They went crazy. Um, so many beautiful, beautiful things about it here. Uh, we took it, we had an opportunity to do it off Broadway, but we would have had to minimize it. And the boys didn't want to do that. They wanted to see their show with, you know, you know, at least 28, 28 people in it. It takes, I'll just tell you briefly, the storyline is, um, uh, it's a turn of the century, backwater Louisiana, and Joel played, he wrote it, he wrote the lyrics, he, you know, wrote the book, and um, played the lead, so he was a triple threat in this, and Marty wrote all the music, which was fully sung through, so it's, operatic but it's not operatic it's just it's it and anyway it's like a it's like an old american fable kind of and he's a, a guy who is an ex-con and he's a traveling executioner who goes around the state you know taking care of the condemned in a more humane way because prior to that it was hanging you know and stuff and they figured the electric chair was more humane and he really took pride in his work and he meets me and i'm on death row i'm an austrian courtesan on death row for a murder she may or may not have committed. This sounds like really dark and terrible, but it was, it was really about American ingenuity because he falls in love with me and then he tries to, you know, get me out of the situation I'm in. It was gorgeous and glorious. And so Jimmy Niederlander liked it, the big producer, and he wanted to do it, but he wanted to do it off-Broadway in one of the new theaters at that time. This is 1992. Yeah. And he wanted to do it in one of these smaller theaters. And, and at that time, those theaters on 42nd Street weren't that known and people weren't necessarily going. And so the boys chose to raise a little more money and take it to London. And unfortunately, the Brits didn't really appreciate this American. It was so American. And, you know, I think they're still pissed off that we spilled their tea in Boston Harbor, quite honestly. honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so they were not that fond of it and it didn't fly which was a huge disappointment to us because prior to that, all we had gotten were tremendous accolades here. I actually see that show coming back now because it's kind of like a Hamilton for the everyday guy. You know, it's kind of like, because it's written like a Hamilton. You could rap a lot of these songs. The lyrics are so good and so um, synced in with the music. You could do that, and and it's it would be great to see American pioneer spirit. You know, it would really be good to see that now. It'd be healing to see that now, because Jonas is quite a character. You really fall in love with him. So that was probably my favorite experience uh, theatrically, as because it was all the highest highs and it was the deepest depths. You know, when it didn't happen. We ended up staying in London for a while because we just didn't know what to do when we got home. It just, it took the stuffing out of us, you know. It really, Joel came home, but Marty and I stayed in London for like another eight or nine months because we just needed to put ourselves back together. That one just took it out of us. You know, it was actually a very beautiful time after it. We just, you know, helped each other get better. It was, it was 
quite stunning, actually, in retrospect when I think about it. But I really wish that show would have flown. That would have been a different life. Yeah, yeah. So did you enjoy the process of creating an original role in an original show after having done some of these revivals? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And one that went, remember I talked about roles feeling like a coat you put on? Yeah. Gretchen was the character. She was like a coat. I just put her on. I just knew what to do. I mean, I was open to direction, of course, but I didn't get too much of it because I just had an understanding of this girl, you know, and how, and how to work it. So, yeah. And to watch everybody else, even the, our British cast was excited by it, but they had, the whole time they had this foreboding. I could feel it, you know, and they would voice it sometimes. They would like just go, did you really know what you're doing here with this show? Because they knew that the, once you raise that flag, we raise the American flag in it, and we're like waving the American flag. I mean, and the whole idea of, of the electric chair, they had this whole thing about capital punishment. And I, I just said to Marty, I said, this is the land where, you know, of Shakespeare, where they shove rods up people's butts. Forgive me, but, you know, in Shakespeare, they do that. They do the most gross and inhumane things. I said, they're going to get it. They're going to go with it. Well, they didn't go with it, you know. And it wasn't about that at all. It wasn't about an electric chair and, you know, fry, and frying people, as Jonah says. It was about this man's incredible resilience, you know, and the resilience of the true American, you know, the guys that built this country, you know, that, that, that carved out a living when there was like, you know, how are you going to do this? There was like, things were not in place. You know, you didn't walk into an office building and have an interview. It wasn't like that. There was nothing here. They just had to figure it out. So it was about that kind of spirit. But anyway, maybe someday, maybe someday it'll be passed on to some wonderful director and he'll, I always saw like Hugh Jackman in that role or somebody like that. Cause Joel and I now, I did have to write a grandma's role or Gretchen's mother <laughs> for me to do it, for well, me to do it. <laughs> but well, there, it's a cast recording. You're going to have, you have to hear it. If you haven't find that recording and listen to it, you'll see what I mean. Then you write me about it. Okay. I will. I will. So, okay. I, so I'd love to know too about your collaboration with the American cast as well and the director. Oh, great. All our collaborations were great on it, both in, here and in London. Wonderful. And then we recorded it with a beautiful um, First Night Records. The guy had done Les Mis and all that. Uh, names are all escaping me. It's terrible. But he was beautiful, and he thought Fields was going to be the next Les Mis. Oh. He, he was recording, he and he was like a really smart, smart guy. But fate does what fate does. <laughs> So, so your next Broadway show was The Scarlet Pimpernel after this. So how did this first sort of begin for you? Well, we came back from London and we were pretty, you know, we were sorted together, but our lives were in disarray because we had invested everything in the show and we had to figure out, you know, what we were going to do. And soon after getting back, Kathleen Raitt, who worked for the Nederlanders, called me and said, there's this role. And um, I think you'd be perfect for it. And they didn't offer it to me. I had to go in and I had to sing for all the producers. And, and there was another actress who was in high contention, Carolee Carmelo. Oh. And I sang and I sang and Bill Haber, who was one of the producers and became a good friend. When I finished singing, he said, there's your Marguerite. That's her. Do what you want and he walked out 
but to him, I don't know, I just embodied what he wanted. So I got the part and uh, that was quite a trip. What do you want to know about it? <laughs> well, so, I'd love to ask you uh, a general question, actually. Since your cabaret career was already sort of flourishing at this point, do you think that that affected the, your style of performance on stage at all? Or Maybe. I mean, cabaret forces you to take off all your covers. You know, you have to just drop any veneer because an audience, you know, doesn't really want that. Unless, unless you're like the kind of performance artist that has, you know, a sort of persona. But I'm not like that. So I, maybe I'd gotten more vulnerable perhaps. I don't know. If the part's right, I think I'm always like that. But if I, the part, if I'm comfortable in it, I think I don't have trouble shedding my stuff. But uh, that might have helped. You know, it all helps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so going back to the Scarlet Pimpernel, I'd love to know about Douglas Sills and Terrence Mann and the other great cast members who you worked with. They were great. I mean, again, I mean, these are just the nicest people. We appreciate each other's gift. You know, Douglas was astonishing. Terry is, he's crazy and wonderful. My son developed a big man crush on Terry. Um, Douglas, I never saw anybody work harder in my life. Maybe Lara Teeter and he compete for working hard on parts, Lara and On Your Toes, but um, Douglas really worked hard. But you know, this was huge for Douglas. It was a great role. He was fantastic in it. And he and Terry had a wonderful rapport. I never knew what was going to happen when I walked on stage because they would start riffing on lines in, in a good way, not in a bad way. They would like, they would riff. They would like go off script and just quip at each other at certain points in the show, you know, like during the sword fight or, you know, I mean, when it was a light and, you know, funny part of the show or, you know, when it was appropriate, <laughs> just, it was as much fun for me as it was. I think people kept coming back. They kept coming back in the audience just to see what was going to happen between them. They'd see it two and three and four times just to see what they were going to do, you know. But they were a lot of fun to work with, a lot of fun. But then I left after a year because I missed my kids. When you do a show, you're not home at night and you're not home on the weekends. So yeah. there's a whole part of your life you, you miss with your children. My kids were eight and I missed them. So after a year, I just said, okay, this was fun, but I got to go, you know. And I'd love to know, too, about the director, uh, Peter Hunt, who you were working with on this. Well, he wasn't too helpful, I'll be honest. I mean, he just, because I knew that my character was underdeveloped, and I didn't understand how, not that I wanted more time on the stage, but I wanted her to be more of a person that you could feel things for. And I felt that wasn't really drawn. And... Uh, he just kind of didn't listen, you know. He didn't pay attention or didn't hear what I was saying. And I, don't, I wasn't horribly insistent, but it is kind of a big point to make, you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Peter just, he was involved with other things and whatever. And, and, I, and I never could get a clear communication with him. So that was, that was a little bit depressing because I felt there was a weak link and it was me. But it was the writing, it wasn't me. I mean, I can't put things that aren't there, you know? Mm. And I think maybe some of the other people, initially, ultimately when the show did not succeed in a big way, many people felt that it, it fell on Peter's lap, you know, because he, he should have maybe 
we didn't have a lot of time. Again, you know, that time thing, you know, there wasn't a lot of time. And the awful thing was we did this in New York City. We rehearsed it in New York City. When you rehearse in New York City, everybody is there looking and gossiping and your self-conscious is the point. And it's hard to be creative when you're self-conscious. Perhaps Peter just got really self-conscious and felt the pressure. And that just puts such a dent in your creativity. You know, it just puts such a dent because you're looking over your shoulder all the time. You know, you're not in the work 100%. So I think there was just not the atmosphere to be as creative as we needed to be because it was a wonderful idea. You know, this is the first Zorro story, you know, the guy who wears a mask and goes and does good deeds, you know, um, in, a, in a dual, you know, identity. Um, it was a great idea. Wildhorn's really good with that. He picks wonderful stories and concepts to musicalize. So I want to ask you um, about the director, do you prefer, what balance do you prefer in terms of doing the, some of the character work on your own and being close with the director and doing it closely? Well, if we're both on the same page, then it's kind of just, it it just, you know, sinks in and there's there's no sense of my idea or your idea, you know? Um, most times I found directors have kind of just let me explore a lot. I'm trying to think of a director who maybe got in there and shifted me deeply. Not too many. And I would have enjoyed that. I mean, I was begging for direction in My Fair Lady, you know, begging for it, and there was none. Um, I mean, I think any actor is really grateful when they're working on something to have a director see what you're doing intuit where you're going with it and then if he senses you are you know just not quite breaking through to where you want to go helping you do that I mean that's the point the point is not me the point is the play and what needs to be said in the play and to have a director assist you in getting the points made only makes the play better so you know I would I would appreciate anyone helping me do that yeah and I'd love to ask you, too, about Frank Wildhorn, who, of course, is a great composer. I think he's a good composer. I think he has great ideas. Um, and, you know, he's certainly been quite popular. And he did beautiful things for Linda Etter, who he was married to for a while. It's just a different kind of writing for me. And he sensed that because it's more pop. And I'm not a pop singer. I mean, I've learned to be better at pop singing since Pimpernel, believe it or not. I, You know, but I don't. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm... Pop singers are pushed by the rhythm and I'm pushed by the lyrics. So uh, I've tried to learn, because I think it's fun. I, I was thinking of doing a, a show, and I'm not going to say which one because somebody else will do it, but on, on a pop artist. And it would really require me buckling down and getting a whole other kind of engine, like another kind of engine underneath me for making sound. It's just a different way of producing sound. And I think Frank knew that, and he really wanted to work with me, but I... To this day, I can't tell you whether I was right or wrong, but I shied away from it. I, I was afraid that he just wanted to turn me into Linda Etter or something, who's a wonderful singer, but I'm not her. She's a great singer. Um, and I shied away from it for some reason at the time, mm -hmm. feeling that that wouldn't help me. And I think it sort of annoyed him, which I can understand that. So we never really developed a rapport. I don't think, I didn't dislike him, and I don't know, I don't think he disliked me. 
but I think he wanted to change the kind of singer I am, I guess, and and I I didn't want to do that. So um, that was that part of it. And I would say he's a good composer. I think sometimes with Frank's music, if he went a little deeper into the songs, because I think it come, I think I think melodies come very easily to him, which is a wonderful thing. But sometimes you've got to keep crafting a melody to make it really, you know, do something. Uh, I don't know what the word is. To just make the song really, you know, pop or 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 you know reflect a character or reflect the situation, you know, reflect the human condition. Sometimes you really have to work it to get it to work. I mean, all the great composers, Rogers and Hammerstein, Rogers and Hart, Lerner and Lowe, you know, um, they all like really crafted. They took a long time. They agonized over things. I don't think Frank, he might have agonized, but I don't think he did. I think, I think he, he was just, it came quickly. And so sometimes I wished he would have just crafted a little more and perhaps, you know, because he hasn't had any really long runs, right? Yeah. You know, he really, you know, his shows haven't gone on and on and he's taken a lot of hits from people. And it's a shame because there's definitely a great gift there, you know? And Frank, I hope you don't, not angry that I said those things. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just my opinion. Yeah. And, and have you have... liked to work closely with other original composers? Well, I work with Marty, of course, you know, my husband. And that's like air. Working with Marty is like, we just sort of think alike on things musically. It's the easiest thing maybe in our relationship is making music together. It's just really always been, because we've done all these cabaret shows together that I've written, you know, and he's done the arranging um, with me, because I, I contribute too, but, you know, a lot of it comes from, he just intuits, you know, this would be great if we just, do let's add this song, let's put this song and this song together, or let's, you know, just modulate only once, not twice, or, you know, I mean, he has a great, he's a great showman. Yeah. And it's wonderful to be both a composer and a showman. A showman, that's a whole other thing. That's like just knowing how to exist on a stage. It's natural. He knows how to just be natural. And I forced him to get on the stage and sing. He had never done that. Oh. So, I mean, we just have this, it's a mutual respect and a mutual appreciation of each other's abilities. So working with Mart is the most fun I've ever had, musically, I guess. You know? Um trying to think other composers. Work with Sammy Kahn, lyricist, but I didn't really work with him directly because I was only covering. I guess that's all the original people I've worked with. Yeah. Creating something from the start. Maybe I'll think of my life, you know, I, I don't think about, I never look back much, you know, so that's why it's interesting to do an interview like this because I don't think back to these things very often. Mm -hmm. So I probably will skip a number of pieces to my life or because I don't, I just don't think about it. Yeah. Till right now. <laughs> yes, yes, I guess, I guess right now. So I'd love to take a quick break from your stage career to ask about your film and TV career. And the first project in that that I'm curious about is the TV movie you did about Mia Farrow, where you played Ava Gardner. It was crazy. I couldn't believe they hired me for that. It was fun. It was, you know, a short stint. Um, and I don't consider myself a beauty like Ava, so that was kind of crazy. But I look nice, and oh, I look yes, nice, yeah. and um, it, it was fun. I mean, I, f 
film and TV are very different than I'm used to because they're out of context. You know, you don't do anything in a linear way. You know, you, you do the last scene first and the first scene last and the middle gets all jumbled up. And, and I'm more, I like, I like sequence. I like feeling the arc. So I, I had to learn. Ava was not a big part, so it was not that complicated for me. Um, but other TV work, you know, I did a Law and Order, uh, which apparently is shown a lot. And even to this day, I will walk into a supermarket and some woman will stop me and go, I know you're, I went to get a mammogram, which for a woman is painful. It's, you know, a breast exam and they squish you down in a machine and it's not fun. And as this woman is doing, she goes, I know your face. I know your face. I know your face. I know your face. I said, law and order. She goes, yeah, and this is, this is last year. So law and order is like 20 years ago that I did that. But I guess I, I think it's my hair, which doesn't look so great today. You know, that, that, and she said, no, it's your eyes. I said, okay, okay, whatever it was. So that, that recognition is a big thing for an actor in TV that people know who you are. But I've never really capitalized on it because every time I've done any kind of film or television, and I did a soap opera too for a year, um, I miss singing. Yeah. I miss it. So I end up, you know, just wanting to go back to that. And speaking of singing on TV, you did a few um, musical comedy tonights with Sylvia Kay, which was... Oh, that was fun. That was a lot of fun, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, well, I, th I did a, a play with Kay Ballard, a musical with Kay Ballard, um, the actress and comedian. I think it was uh, Blythe Spirit, which is based on an old coward play. It was a lot of fun. John McMartin was in it, and um, all the other actors escapes me, but she was very well known. Anyway, did this play, and Kay took a great liking to me and kind of mentoring me, and she got this she was part of I don't was she in that no Kay wasn't even in it I don't think but she opened the door for me to meet some people yeah um I think that's how that started and so I was asked to do a couple of numbers something from the Mikado which was the first musical I'd ever done as a kid uh in public professional musical although it was community theater so I guess it's not really pro but it wasn't high school let's put it that way and I did another piece, Leave It to Jane, something else. And I worked with, oh, come on, Christine, Barbara Streisand's arranger. He's Peter Metz. He really was taken with my talent, and he wanted to record me. And my then-husband kind of kiboshed it, which was too bad. It was just one of those kind of things where, you, you know, that you do one thing and people love what they're seeing, and he wanted to run with it, and it would have been great. But... It didn't happen. <laughs> so you have played um, real life characters a few times, including Ava Gardner. And also I know you did a show where you played Judy Garland. So mm -hmm. um, what has that experience been like of actually? Well, the Ava thing was very tiny. So it wasn't, you know, as, as big an investigation. Uh, it wasn't in depth. But Judy Garland, it was a play called, a play with music called Heartbreaker. Um, and that was, that was complicated. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it because it's such a tragic life and I didn't think I wanted to go there. You know, there's no, there's no salvation in this Judy Garland story. Um, 
but it was a provocative story because they didn't dwell on uh, it wasn't sensationalized it wasn't you know it wasn't it was a it, this gentleman had lived with her for five months or something like that and had really you know gotten to know her gotten to and and John and John's last name is gone on the ether on my eighth day of a fast but somehow we'll have to look up his name because he should be given credit is it um Meyer I think yes John yes Meyer mm -hmm. thank you sorry John sorry uh, it's just my fast not you um, and John had lived with her all that time and really he was in love with her and so his you know speaking of her and writing about her was from someone who had you know you know taken care of her changed her life around he really did because she was she was broken when she met him she was totally broken she had she had five dollars in her pocket she had, had hadn't had a bath in a month no in a week sorry in a week because she was staying in a place where she was afraid to get in the tub she was just living off whatever she could find she'd lost her caps on her front teeth i mean judy garland the great judy garland was so down and out because of her habits and she still couldn't kick her habits pills and vodka and she let and john walked in the door because this guy where she was staying whose tub she wouldn't use <laughs> this guy said you need new songs for uh, an act i'm going to put together for you and he called up john to um give give him a song and she left with John. She left the guy's apartment and just went with John. I'm with you. She said, I'm with you. So it was this crazy relationship because she was a desperate woman. And of course, he ultimately fell in love with her and, and really did a lot to bring her back on her feet. But she left him when he could no longer supply her with vodka and pills, mostly the pills. So that was it. And then she went off to somebody else. So she was just a mess at the end. And that made it hard to do. But, you know... I, I, I enjoyed it because it was, because I love Judy Garland and um, it, it was, it was just good to live that life for a little bit, but I, I could never do a run of a show on Judy Garland. It was the same time when they were doing that one that came to New York and the girl from London played Judy uh, and I, I was asked to cover her and I didn't want to do it because I just thought, I don't want to be around that kind of... And that one was very sensational. It was, you know, all about the booze and the drugs and, and no human story underneath. What drove her to those drugs? What drove her to that? I didn't really get into the human... I didn't like it, so I said no. Mm. Other Side of the Rainbow, I think it was called. Mm. I mean, it's, it's sad that, you know, people just like to trash the um, and dwell on the negative, right? the the tragedy of a, of, a, of, a, of a great artist now Piaf on the other hand which you'll get to I guess but that's a whole different character which if we get into it I'll get into it later because I thought the same thing why do I want to do a show on Piaf because she also was into a lot of drugs she also died at 47 but it's a whole other story she's a different soul yeah. I mean Judy was a victim Piaf is not a victim and that's the difference yeah yeah so what was it like to have John Meyer himself around in rehearsals and be dealing with sort of his vision of her? Hmm. I guess that was one of the special aspects of it, because I mean, he didn't direct it, but 
um, you know, you went to John to say, what was she like when this happened? Or how funny was she? Or, yeah. you know, I mean, John could tell you about the woman from an intimate, intimate place, you know? And that was very special to just have that resource right there, you know? Like, John, I mean, am I, am I getting too indulgent in the way I'm reading this? Or would she get this angry? Or, you know, did she just turn on a dime and shift, you know, emotionally like that? You know, you could really get, because want, I wanted to try to be as true to her as possible. I don't try to be the person, but I because I think that's ridiculous. But I try to just, you know, channel their energy, if you can, you know. So the more that he could tell me about, the real life girl and the real life situation, you get a sort of confidence then about just going full throttle in that direction or that direction or that direction. And it's very reassuring. That's where I'm very directable, you know? Like, let me, let me just get the truth of her. She deserves that, you know? And put before the audience this very human, fragile, although she's very strong too, but she had, you know, a great fragility too. Um, person for the audience and so they would maybe see something else rather than just Judy Garland that tragic figure you know so another somewhat tragic character you played although in a very different way was Margaret in the light on the piazza on tour so oh yeah how did you I, how did I like it mm, I loved it now there's an interesting little precursor to that because my son, Mac, was 18, and I told you he's special needs and on the spectrum. And at 18, he just, like, indicated. I mean, he's verbal. He can talk to me and everything, but, but he can't really express. He's like a four-year-old sort of in his head, right? So, But he, he let me know he wanted his own life at 18. Like any natural 18-year-old wants to leave home and start figuring out who they are, whether it's through school or whatever it is. And within months, we found a group home for him, and a nice one nearby. And the story of Piazza is a mother and daughter. It's based on a short story. They're traveling through Italy. And the, the girl is 26, but she's arrested to the age of 10 because of an accident that the mother feels she created. And the daughter falls in love with a young, uh, a young man, a young Italian man and Florentine guy. And the mother is really not willing to let the daughter go because of this accident. And she's terrified that, you know, she just won't it won't work for the daughter and she'll have she'll have she needs victories the daughter you know and she's afraid she'll fail in this marriage so she doesn't want it to happen but anyway the point was that I just the day that I signed the contract for Piazza was you know the, almost to the day that I mean I think it was four days earlier my son had moved into the group home so I was the mom of a special kid letting go playing the mom of a special kid letting go. Mm -hmm. And that kind of little miracle and graceful piece was so helpful, you know, during the whole process. Piazza is a beautiful show. I loved doing it. It was a hard show. I'm never off stage, but I loved doing it. I mean, Adam Gettle just wrote a score that's, it kind of, it's almost mystical in places. It just almost just there's something of the divine in some of that score. You know, it really goes to a another place. And did you, or what was the experience like having to sort of 
expose that part of yourself on stage or did you try to avoid the more personal part of it? Or? No, not at all. I mean, you know, you're always working things out in your life and often you can work things out through the play you're in or the, the show you're doing. Often the shows I would do would reflect a certain stage of my life that I was working through. Some aspect of the character I was portraying was something in myself I was trying to work through. So, no, there was nothing to resist in this. I was happy. And she wasn't so tragic. I mean, she was just a product of the times, Margaret, you know? I mean, she was in a marriage that was failing, and you, at that time, you know, you, you kind of don't admit that. You just keep barreling on through, you know? I mean, maybe when she ended up getting home from Italy, she repaired it, or maybe she left the guy, you know? But there was definitely, you know, a, a wall that had been built between her and her husband, and and seeing all the happiness of her child, you know, might have affected her heart to know that she still needed love in her life, whether it was going to be from her current husband or maybe it would come from someone else. So I didn't find her tragic. I found her misguided. Yeah. And I wasn't afraid to, I'm never, I mean, it's not fun to hold back. It's not fun as an actor to hold back going deeper. The whole point is to go deeper, go deeper, go deeper. That's the journey in, in a role, you know, that keeps you able to do it eight times a week. If you just freeze it at a certain level and keep repeating what you know works, you think works every night, the audience knows you're not connected. You have to be connected to your humanity, you know, and see what happens. It's fun. So before I um, ask you about your cabaret, I want to ask you about one more stage role you did, which was Jacqueline in La Cage aux Folles. <laughs> How did you come into this? I know this was a transfer from England. Had you done it in England or? No, no I hadn't done it there. No, Doug Hodge came over from, from London to do the, the lead and Kelsey Grammer was hired to do the other lead, George. And it was beautiful casting which is the secret. It was beautiful casting. They were great together. I balked only because it was a very small part. You know, it's, it's nice, but it's just, you know, a little part. I mean, the show is the two of them. Nobody really has a big part. Um, but Marty was writing at the time a show and we wanted to stay in New York and it was something to do. So I said, yes, yeah. so, okay, let's just, you know, and, and, and as you know, there's, there, there's not, I don't have 15 phone calls a day for roles on stage, so um, I thought, well, it'll get me out there. It'd be fun. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I shared a dressing room with a crazy actress, Vianne Cox, who's a real sweetheart. And we had a great time. Uh, I mean, I had a lot of time off stage. It was never used to time off stage. Yeah. So uh, it was just a different kind of existence. But I looked forward to it. I enjoyed doing it. And I could use a French accent, and da, 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 da. you know, I got to be a little outrageous. And I got to watch some really fine performers, you know. I like to watch, you know, people on the stage. And the Cajels, they were these amazing creatures. These dancers were astonishing what they did. Yeah. I love their worldly and their ability and agility and, and, you know. And they really loved it, too. I think that our little gay friends who were all playing those dancers, they just had the best time. So that was fun, you know. It was a different kind of theater for me. I didn't have to carry any burdens of delivering, you know, giant performances every night. 
you know, I could just fill in the cracks and keep things buoyant, you know, with my little piece. So it was very different. And I also want to ask you about working with some of the other people who were placed, including um, Jeffrey Tambor and Harvey Firestein, who wrote it. Um, Mm-hmm. Well, Jeffrey was miscast. I mean, he, he didn't really, if Kelsey was all sunshine, De- Jeffrey was like darker. He was just dark. And this is nature. That's who he was. It wasn't good or bad, but it, it didn't suit the role. And he knew it too. So he was soon gone um, and replaced by Christopher. Oh, come on, Christine. Sieber. Anyway, yes. It was Riot. Very funny. And Harvey came in. And Harvey's just out there, you know, Harvey's just, phew, Harvey, you know, with that voice. Uh, and audiences were happy, but uh, we didn't fly too much longer after that change. I think people came for Kelsey because he was in their living rooms every day with Cheers and with the other show that he had, you know. He was just so much a part of everybody's life. Um, I kind of think they came for him even though Douglas Hodge was gorgeous and brilliant. But, you know, a lot of your audience comes from out of town, and and Kelsey was just like their buddy, you know? That's my own feeling, and maybe I'm wrong, but that was when it was golden. So I want to move on now to your cabaret career. So we talked about this. I think it started right after Legs Diamond. Was that one? When did I go to the... Yeah, because I said I wasn't going to be at the mercy of you know, bad scripts or producers or whatever and be fired, you know, you, you want to stay, when you when the juices are flowing, you want to keep singing, you know. Um, so I did a show at the ballroom with my then husband and my son was very little and that was really successful. And then I didn't do any more till I, I, I had just done Fields with my husband. We'd done the reading and he'd gone back to L.A., and I got asked to sing at the White House. And I called him up and I said, I think I called him in L.A. And I said, hey, so I called Marty in L.A. And I said, so I got a gig and um, I was wondering whether you'd be interested in coming east and helping me work on a new show. And he said, oh, you got a new gig? And he said, he said where? And I said, well, the White House. And he went, what? Yeah, sure. So. He came east, and again, that alchemy we had making music, it was just like, and I I was a little nervous because I hadn't done that much of this cabaret thing, and this was for George H.W. Bush and and um, his White House, and I was concerned, you know, so, but very intuitive, and we put together a 45-minute set, I think they wanted, and it was being done in the private living quarters of the bushes you know it was like in their living room and it was only for 40 people from Bermuda and we had dinner beforehand I sat at a table with Barbara Bush and I didn't know this little guy was sitting next to me um and I thought most of the people were from Bermuda and he he was so he's talking to me and I and I say uh, so you work in Bermuda too and he says, uh, no, I'm Brent Scowcroft, the National Security Advisor. <laughs> He's like this big guy. He's like, But he found it completely charming that I did not know who he was. I don't watch a lot of news. Uh, I didn't at that time anyway. I've been watching for the last four years, but not so much then. And uh, anyway, and, and Barbara Bush told me, if Brent stays awake, you know you've 
been a big success here. And Brent stayed awake the whole show, so that was fun. And Marty, God bless them. He, he, we had no encore. And on the train coming down, going to Washington, he said, "Well, we better, we better think of something." So we, we, we thought of a song and put that in as an encore. And when we finished, the president of the United States says, "We can't let you go. We need a song." And Marty goes, "Mr. President, we don't have another song." And he goes, hey, Marty, Marty, I just saw you played the piano. I just heard this girl sing, I'm the president of the United States and I want another song. And I'm like, oh my God, we don't have another song because this is my first concert put together in like forever. And Marty, God bless him, he just said, I remember the first time I saw Christina Andreas on the stage and I knew she had to know this song. And I whispered it and said, Kia C. And he went, da, 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 bed, bed, I couldn't go to bed. And we went into I could have danced all night and saved our butts. So that was that first big concert. And then, you know, so many other shows just happened after that, just flowed after that, because that show became the seed of a show called Love is Good, which I did at the Oak Room, and which is gone now. It's now a breakfast room or something in the beautiful Algonquin Hotel, that beautiful room in the Oak Room. I did it at the Carlisle. I didn't do Love is Good. I did... I did, I wrote a show for the Carlisle called The Carlisle Set, which is a more jazz-based, that was my next show, and that was with four kick-ass jazz guys, I mean, brilliant, Lou Marini, uh, Lee Musiker, Ray Marchica, and uh, um, Dick Sarpel, a bass player, and they were just gorgeous musicians, and they changed my way of singing. I just had never had that kind of right behind my back, these rhythms and these sounds and, and also they improvise. I mean, Lee, I never knew what Lee was gonna do. I never knew what Lou Marini was gonna do on the reeds. I never knew what was gonna happen. And I loved it. I mean, because it was always true to the music. It's just, I never quite knew. So they really changed my whole approach. And that was great. And then I wrote a show called Here's to the Ladies because the Carlisle was grooming me to replace Barbara Cook. It was privately owned. And at the time, and Dan Camp, who I think was the acting manager of the Carlisle, just said, you know, it's going to take time because, you know, it's a very high tariff to go see a show there. It's going to take time to build a crowd. It's okay. And he wanted me to come back with a themed show this time. And I wrote a show called Here's to the Ladies, honoring all the ladies in the theater that I grew up listening to on that old 45 on the fridge when I was a kid. And it was a really pretty show. And here's a funny story. So opening night. I had this beautiful green, emerald green dress and it had a lot of beading. Uh, and I had sent it out to be cleaned. And opening night, I go to the closet and we're five minutes before curtain. And I open the door and it's not there. It hadn't come back. All that's there is an olive green raincoat. Floor, almost, you know, ankle length olive green raincoat. And now it's four minutes, three minutes to curtain. And I heard the voice of Ethel Merman, who's one of the women I was singing, say, Honey, if they came to see a dress, they should have stayed home. And I went, and I went, and, I, and it broke all, because I was so nervous about the show. It was a lot of music and a lot of words. And it just cracked me up, and I found a needle and thread, because it had a big, uh, uh, an opening in the back. You know, they have that, they have that opening. Sometimes the raincoats have a big open pleat in the back. And I sewed that up so you wouldn't see things you shouldn't see. 
I threw on my gold strapped shoes, which went great with it, and I had gold jewelry, and I just went downstairs and did my show in a raincoat. You know, but it broke my nerves, which was the most important. And you can still see that picture of me. It's uh, in the New York Times cover page, sitting on a piano in a raincoat. So I learned from that, too. I mean, you just got to be resilient and go with it because an audience doesn't come to see your dress. You know, that could have ruined somebody's whole show. Right. I mean, it could have just derailed you. But it didn't. I just thought it was funny, especially Ethel. <laughs> And let's see, and then the Carlisle was bought, and the current people who run it now, they just had a whole other idea about it, what they want in the room. So my dreams of being Barbara Cook kind of went, you know, and you got to be resilient with that too. It would have been great to become a regular there, but it didn't work out. Um, and now at 54 Below, you know, I, I wrote a lot of shows for them, different, like, let's see, I did Be Mused, which is how a composer and an artist inspire each other. You know, composer, lyricist, artist, like like Dionne Warwick with Burt Bacharach and Hal David, you know, or Jobim with Astrid Gioberto, or, you know, so I thought that was an interesting idea. My shows tended to be a little esoteric and not as commercial in concept, but the content was very commercial, things you would all enjoy, songs you would enjoy hearing. But, you know, a lot of, when you write a cabaret show, you have to keep in mind that you've got to get people to walk in the door. So when you say, you know, you're doing the Barbara Streisand songbook, it's maybe a lot more alluring than a title like Bemused. What the hell does that mean? But that's the way I am, you know? I mean, I, and then I did a show called Cafe Society, which was about cabaret and nightclubs in the 20s, 30s, 40s, because it was so much more elaborate and rich and, you know, people went out. People went out because they didn't have so many choices at home, you know. Yeah. Three channels on TV, if they had that, mostly just the radio. So, you know, that was another time, very glamorous time. And I think there was one more besides PF that I wrote there. Mm, well, I did my show Love is Good again. You know, I reworked it a bit. And I remember when that was over, Holden was, Stephen Holden of the New York Times was right in front of me. And he's been very kind to me. He really has liked what I do. But this one was very personal. It was a different kind of show. It's my story with Marty. It's my story. And I remember right after I finished, I just took my applause and then I went right to his table and I said, did you like it? Because I just can't wait. And he looked at me and he said, I really loved it. It might be the best show I've seen you do. And I went, ah. <laughs> so... <laughs> And then they stopped writing reviews for the New York Times, I believe, and I did my PF show. And unfortunately, I wish Stephen would have seen that, but he didn't. I mean, he might have seen it, but he didn't write about it. I don't think he saw it. I always wondered what happened, where Stephen Holden went, because he was our voice, you know, in the New York Times. And I don't know. Anyway, uh, so I did PF No Regrets. And all these shows I'm mentioning to you, well, most of them, Love is Good, uh, Carlisle Set, Here's to the Ladies, and Piaf, Marty turned into CDs. We recorded them, and this is one thing you can do. We recorded them, I guess you're going to probably ask me that, but we recorded them in London, most of them. Not Carlisle Set was done here. With 36 pieces and 55 pieces and 34 pieces. I mean, these were like not just a girl and a piano. These are major recordings. And Piaf which I've been working on even now, we, we filmed it 
to be a, a virtual performance because of the times we're going through. And it's coming along. I'm almost finished with all the editing, and it's coming along beautiful. It's so beautiful. So, you know, doing those shows, you can not only have shows that you can do for the rest of your life in venues around the country and around the world, but you can turn them into, you know, CDs. So I'm very proud of them. So what, what is it like, the experience of recording your cabaret shows where you don't have an audience to play off as you would? It's great. I mean, once you've done something live, I mean, it really does help to have done something live and because you, you hold that in your heart with that give and take is like. Um, I remember my second husband had managed Natalie Cole, the great singer. And, she, and I've seen Natalie work like 300 times. I mean, she was just a brilliant animal on the stage you know just just everything about her was opened up and she was ferocious she was like Lena Horn you know she was like all over she was great and she sang all kinds of music rock and roll blues you know standards she could do anything she really was a rock and roller um she said you know it's so much different after you've worked it it's so much different to be in the studio after you worked it and it's true because she would hold the energetics of that exchange with you in the audience. Um, you just hold on to that. It's in you. It's in you as a singer. You just remember what that feels like. So you bring that into the studio. And it doesn't matter that you don't have the physical applause. I mean, right now with the virtuals, you get nothing. I mean, I, I did this whole filming of Piaf. There was nobody out there. I'm singing this whole show, this huge show, and there's nobody applauding me, but it didn't matter. I know what it's like to get that. So I just have that in me to know what the appreciation is for, for it. And I know what, I know how the show works, how well it works. So when you sing it in studio, it's just, then it's about the orchestration because I didn't have 55 pieces in Here's to the Ladies like I do when I, I'm recording it. It's just the thrill of that. And your audience is mostly like, it's the orchestra, you know, it's the conductor. It's the people making music with you with this deep appreciation for what they're doing and that's what makes it fabulous you know you're all bonded you're all in sync you're all basically almost telepathic you're psychic with each other you can just feel the highs of the lows the ebbs and the flows the crescendos and decrescendos you feel it all it's fantastic i guess it's like a team sport where everybody gets in each other's head you know yeah. it's just great i love the studio so um, going back to sort of the subject of Bemused, um, have you developed close relationships with composers since starting your cabaret career? Especially Hal David. He became a really great friend, um, lyricist. Uh, he just, I mean, he, he sought me out whenever he came to New York, Marty and I both, and he and his wife Eunice, and I mean, to sit at his feet and listen to stories about, you know, how that lyric came about or this, because he, he often had to just write after Bert had written the melody and just fill in the cracks with lyrics, you know, um, which was astonishing. If you listen to, do you know the way to San Jose? LA is a great big freeway, put a hundred down and buy a car. You know, I mean, if you listen to these lyrics, you can't figure how these words came to him how they came. And he, he told us a story about raindrops could be falling on your head. 
And I think now it's okay to tell it, but there was a time when Hal was not in good shape. He was drinking too much. And he had had an episode with the drinking that really just sobered him up. And he said, I got to get help. And Bert called and said, you know, in Hal's in New York. And he says, you got to come to L.A. You got to, you got to, um, we have to score this film, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid. And Hal said, I can't do that now because I'm, I'm just in recovery and I, I can't, I need my sponsor. I need my, my support system here in New York to stay sober, you know, basically. And he said, Hal, you got to come out. We got to do this. And so Hal got on the plane without any support and flew to L.A. And I think somebody probably met him there. But raindrops keep falling on my head. It's about somebody drying out from alcoholism. It's about somebody just, my feet are too big for my bed. You know, nothing seems to fit. The uncomfortability, the discomfort, the, the I guess maybe even torture of going through that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what that song's about. For how? Not for the movie, but for how. So he, he was just glorious to know. Kindest love. He was a good friend of my friend, Dina Merrill. She introduced us. She introduced us uh, in the aisle of the Virginia Theater during the during the um, the break between uh, acts of the Titanic, intermission of the Titanic, <laughs> and he we just hit it off. I had just recorded "Love Is Good" and I needed what I call a luminous blurb, which is something really nice, something famous says about your CD after they listen to it, and you take that phrase of whatever they said and you smack it onto the front of that album so you go out and buy it. Um, I say that in my show and Hal said he would. I asked, So I asked Hal. I never ever met the guy in my life. He said I got the CD and if I do this would you? And he said he would and he did and I got a blurb from Hal David. So he's the biggest relationship I guess I cultivated in all those years. You know I, I mean I, I met Sammy as I said and we were friendly but it didn't blossom into a a relationship like that. I wasn't very good at that. It took meeting Marty, who's very social, much more social than me. And, you know, he would say, take advantage, you know, get to know that person. Let's get to know that person. He would, he would be the one to, you know, and, and he was really right. I learned that from him. It seems, isn't it crazy? You have to learn how to be social that way, but I was pretty shy. So, and always embroiled in these big relationships. And I just didn't do that. But with Marty, you know, it's it's opened up a lot of things for me mm-hmm. so, in 30 um, years. <laughs> Go ahead. So what is your sort of opinion on using new music in your acts? Do you ever have anything written for you? Or? I haven't, no. I mean, new music, I mean, Marty writes new songs, and I do his songs. So, yes, I shouldn't say no. I mean, I, outside of Mart, though, oh, I just recorded something. Um, for Christmas. David Friedman wrote a song, uh, I Won't Be Seeing You This Christmas, because of COVID, obviously. He wrote it for his friends, because normally he has all these friends over on Christmas, and he cooks for them and makes them dinner and all this. And So since he wasn't going to be doing that, he wrote a song, and it's really a sweet, lovely song. And when we heard it, Mart said, we should record this. And we didn't record it, we just made a YouTube out of it. But it, it's really sweet and we we did a very nice track in a friend's studio and we went we went to some length it's not just done on your phone you know we made a real recording of it uh and so when i hear things you know when we hear things that 
resonate, yeah, I would sing something new. But mostly it would be Marty's music that's new, that I incorporate. Not, not, I really haven't incorporated. I mean, Amanda McBroom, who I love, but they're not new songs. You know, I've done some of Amanda's songs that touch me because she's such a lovely writer. I'm open. Send them my way, guys. Anybody got a new song you think I'd sound good on? You know, David Hodge just sent me a song, and I have to really buckle down and look at it. I might sing that. <clears throat> He's a nice writer. He's a lyricist, and he wrote this with, I'm afraid I've forgotten her name, but, you know, that might work. Because yeah. it's nice to put new music out there. Yeah, yeah, it is. So how did you sort of find your own style as a performer when you were starting out in cabaret? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know that I'm, you know, I don't know that you start by thinking what kind of style, you know, you don't think about it. I mean, you're just looking for music that you want to sing. Um, and my first shows were more eclectic. I like that kind of show. I'd rather not have a theme. I'd rather just sing what I want to sing, like they used to do in the old days, like Frank Sinatra didn't have themes. Sometimes he recorded a theme, but, you know, his shows were... Frank was singing what Frank wanted to sing. Ella sang what she wanted to sing, you know. I'd rather hear what the artist wants to do than strap them with a, you know, a theme. So I preferred that, and I preferred songs, of course, that had melodies that I loved, and also lyrics that I, I, things I wanted to express. I veered away from victim songs. I don't like songs where the person is, you know, victimized. And there's so many, you know, I'm nothing without you. I don't exist, you know, unless you're in my life giving me love. I don't know, I, you know, I'll never love again, you know. I mean, there's just so many songs about unworthiness and not being able to, you know, and, and disempowering songs. I didn't want to do those. I mean, I recorded a couple. It's a gorgeous song, I'm a Fool to Want You, that Frank Sinatra sang after he lost Ava. Um, that's, a, that's a piece of life that you go through you know it's, it's a it's a stage you go through when you lose something great so I allowed myself to sing that because the song was so beautiful but I don't like to live there because I think there's enough disempowerment going on anyway and I'd rather sing not that I want goody two-shoes songs I want interesting songs but I try to find songs that just are more buoyant you know I mean I'll sing a blues or something like that but maybe that's part of my style that I don't you know that it's but I I don't know. I don't know what, what my style is. I have no idea. Other than I'm a sort of a lyrical singer, and I come from theater, so it's in, informed by that. And I'm sort of a classicist. I like to do things the way I, I always do things the way they were written, and then I'll riff a little off of the exact way they're written. But I like to see what the composer wanted. So I take a classical. That's a classical approach to your music. Is that part of my style? Maybe you can understand my lyrics usually. Is that a part of my style, maybe? <laughs> what? Do you think I have a style? What would you call my style? Oh, um, I, I don't know. That. That's, a, That's a, a difficult question. Mm -hmm. See? Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Think on it. Think on it, Charles. I will. I'm so, and um, to elaborate on something you said earlier and sort of the reverse of a question I asked earlier, how do you think that your experience in theater shapes your performance as a cabaret singer? That's a good question. Maybe it's made me more comfortable on the stage, made me more resilient on the stage, maybe made me understand what my job is in communicating to an audience. 
taught me the power of relaxing so I could concentrate so I'd be more creative and you know in my singing because there's a ritual I always go through before performance of just chilling out my body you know doing yoga or a hot bath is a big deal um, breathing certain exercises I do just because I know that if I'm tense anywhere like it'll hit my jaw and then it's harder to a tight jaw is not great when you're singing and you know if you're tight in your gut which is where tension goes you know I want to have the breath I need so I, I attack things from my body which I learned from doing eight shows a week so um you were mentioning earlier Stephen Holden and um cabaret critics in general so in your opinion, what do you think makes sort of a good or even a perfect cabaret show? Perfect. Nothing to do with perfect, that's for sure. I guess just your commitment. I think if an artist says to themselves, okay, like a friend of mine is writing a show for Mother's Day for her mother. If you put an idea in your head that really feels important to you and you love, it's important to love expressing this way. When you love something and then you say, okay, so I want to take all my talents and I want to put them through writing a show for my mother for Mother's Day, you know, with her in mind, you know. And then I think your imagination is open because you, you love this idea. Love has a lot to do with it. And I think you get inspired, you know, and you start picking from that grab bag in your mind and heart of songs and things that you've collected through the time and also you find yourself being drawn to certain songs maybe you don't know it's just like a mystical thing almost stuff comes to you when you're approaching it from that open-hearted place songs come to you people come to you opportunities come to you it just comes to you i mean you you've done legwork it's not like you're sitting back saying you know make this show work but i mean most of my writing for shows has happened that way. I sit down to write and some kind of magic happens as I'm working on the piece. The deeper I go, the more committed I am to getting to the real heart of what I want to say. That's also very important. You got to be committed to that. Stuff, ideas just seem to come out of the ether. You know, you'll find the right book to that contains what you want or the right article or the person who has those articles or it just happens but I think you draw it to yourself because of the depth of your commitment to put something together that's honest and truthful and entertaining you know I won't say the show will be perfect but you'll be on your way to having a very good show I think if you have talent you gotta have talent to do it but you know, writing ability. Yeah. So at the beginning of your cabaret career, was there any other cabaret singer who had an influence on you in yeah. some way? Well, I loved Julie Wilson. She was lovely, you know, and we, we bonded during Legs Diamond over our sons, um, talking, being mothers. Um, and she, she was just fiercely wonder. She was a fierce, pioneer-spirited woman. Julie was from Nebraska. You know, she was like salt of the earth. And she'd been huge in her past. She was gorgeous. She was beautiful. She was beautiful even as an older woman. And, you know, there was just a very strong kinship there. She was very encouraging. She liked what I did. Um, cabaret, close by to me. 
I mean, I, I guess I was more inspired by, you know, listening to older singers growing up, more so than, than a cabaret is a funny form. It can be very egoic. Anybody can, you, you want to be a cabaret singer, Charles? You know, just get a microphone, get, get songs together, you know, and see what you can do. Almost anybody, a lot of people take shots at doing it. And, and even the ones who have, are gifted in voice don't always, you know, sometimes it's more about them singing the songs than the songs singing them. You know what I mean? The song sings you. You don't know where you're going to go. You don't know what you're going to do. There's kind of humility about it, you know, rather than you placing your stamp on the song. I'm going to make this song my own. And, you know, it's a different way of, it's a different approach, but it, I don't think that's as interesting. And I see a lot of that kind of ego in cabaret because it's, it's an open field, you know, it can happen. Uh, so the last thing about cabaret that I want to ask you is about your show, Pia, which how you came up with it mm -hmm. and what it was like to embody Well, I resisted that for a long time because I thought, first of all, I, I, I don't speak French, but I, I'm not, a, I've loved French. I've sung in French for a long time. Um, but I knew it would be a lot of work and I was afraid that her life was going to be, you know, too tragic to want to live there for a long time in the writing. I didn't, I don't go through all that. And then a friend of mine who's French Canadian orchestra leader, he just said, you got to do a show on PF. You got to do it. And I went, Raph, I don't want to do it. His name is Raphael Dirksen. I don't want to do it. It's going to be too much work. Oh, Christine, come on. I, I have these great ideas. And finally, he badgered me enough for a couple of years. And I said, fine. So give me a treatment. Show me what you're thinking. And he sent, he sent this rough draft of his show. And it was gorgeous. It was just beautiful. In fact, pieces of it are in my PF show now. I said, okay, fine. Fine. And I did it. And I loved it. And then right after that, Pascal Rieu of Rieu Dance. He's a Parisian choreographer. He has a company here, uh, Rieu, New York City. Beautiful company, sort of a Martha Graham style dance company. He was doing a piece called Street Singer and he wanted me to sing to his dancers. And that was a trip, it was fabulous. So I did another version of PF with him, singing to these gorgeous, between Pascal and Raphael, I thought, I better I better do something on PF. This is this is actually fun. And I learned more about her and I read about her, the beautiful book called No Regrets that I read and I appreciated her on such a deep level because she was such a disciplined artist. She had a crazy life, a crazy beginning. I mean she was born in abject poverty in a ghetto, abandoned by her mother at almost at birth, uh, raised in a brothel for a couple of years by her grandmother, her father's mother. Uh, go, went blind, got her eyesight back, uh, toured with her father in a circus, and then finally went out on her own singing in the streets of Paris for a bed at night. She, there was no money. I mean, it's a crazy life. All this, and she becomes the voice of France herself. So this was an iconic life. And the way she, I mean, the discipline it took to just, she was feral when she was younger. I mean, she was just a street cat. And she knew it. And even when she had this incredible, she, her voice was what it was, developed the way it was, so she could be heard above the street noise. So she, she just grew and grew and grew to become, with this discipline, this, this you know. And I was so inspired by, by that, because that's who I want to be. I want to be like that.
I want to just throughout my whole life just keep, you know, being more authentically myself in song. Mm. That's what matters to me, and that's who she was. So I ended up writing this show, and it had the biggest reaction of anything I've ever written at 54 Below. And I had wonderful reactions on the other shows, but this one was so above and beyond. And this show impressed, like I say, when, when you put your deep intentions into something, you attract things. A mutual friend brought Gary McAvey of Columbia Artists to see my show. And he loved it and signed me. And he calls it, it's one woman show. It's not a cabaret act. It's a theatrical show is what it really is. And um, through Gary, we're, we, we've, you know, then COVID hit. So a lot of the, I mean, we've, we've been delayed in everything our plans are, but I filmed it at the Catherine Hepburn Theater in Old Saybrook. My daughter is a documentary filmmaker, Emily Silvestri. She and her boyfriend, Nathan Golan, have a company. What's Nathan's company? She works for him called The Good Fight. Beautiful company. They came and filmed it. And... It's beautiful, and it will be the next step for me at this stage of my life. That's gonna, I think it's going to be a big deal. So we have, you know, we've been, there's several performing arts centers already doing the virtual. We'll see, you know, and then I still have live performances. I'm going off to Sanibel Island in a couple of weeks because Florida's way opened up for performances. And but they're doing it in a very, you know, careful way. But I'll finally get to sing live, first time in a year, and do my PF show. So that'll be nice. I'm looking forward to that. And this is my next adventure. And we'll see where this goes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to just ask one concluding question, which is what advice would you give to someone just starting out in the theater? Mm. Well, the most important thing is to figure out how you want to express yourself. Sometimes you think it's singing or acting. And if that's what you feel with all your heart and soul, then you, you have to try. But if that isn't what it turns out to be, then whatever you put into doing that will help you with whatever else you end up doing. But if you're going to do that, it's kind of rigorous. That's why, read this book, No Regrets. <laughs> I need to be up, it might be interesting. Because you see, I mean, the discipline it takes. It takes a lot of discipline. But anything worth doing is challenging, right? I guess listening to yourself, being honest with yourself, understanding how being self-conscious is not good. It's very hard because it's a very competitive field. So you're constantly looking to your left and to your right to see who else is, you know, after the same thing you're after. And it splits you. It, it, it splits your focus. It takes you away from yourself. It, it's hard not to do it. And, and of course, we all do it from time to time. But it's important to stay true to yourself. There's only one you. There's no, you know, only you have the gifts you have, you know, 10 people can do the same role you're doing and it won't be the same as the way you do it. I mean, I think charisma is being authentically yourself. I think that's what true charisma is, is that you are true to yourself and, you know, authentically you. And that's a, that's an everyday job to figure that out, the way everything is affecting you, what it makes you feel, not being afraid to feel, you have to feel everything you feel. You have, to, you have to do a ruthless inventory of your past and clear it. All the things that authority has done maybe to shut you down and, you know, whatever has covered you up 
covered up spirit. You have to open it up. You know, you have to make it an everyday thing to keep spirit shining because that will, that's what leads you. You know, your intuition and that hookup, that's what leads you to your next step towards being a true artist. A true artist is who they are, you know, through a role, you know, through a song. And if you try to be something else, because that's from some the outside, that's from the outside in, it must always come from the inside out. It's so much more rewarding. It can be scary at first because just being yourself doesn't feel like enough. But that's everything. Being yourself is everything. So I guess trusting being yourself being enough, but a constantly evolving self. That would be, that's, that's a lot of words. I couldn't pin it down to a sentence, but to thine own self be true would be the way to put it, I guess. That just rang in my head last night for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I've learned so much from you, and I'm so honored to have gotten to talk to you. Oh, it's Charles. You're, you're, you're great. And I wish you great good luck okay. in all your future endeavors. And I told you last time, I want to know what happens to you. So you have to promise you'll let me know, okay? I will. And, and listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next week when I'm joined by Broadway icon Karen Morrow. As one of Broadway's biggest leading ladies in the 1960s and 70s, she counts among her credits shows like The Grass Harp, I Had a Ball, The Selling of the President, I'm Solomon, A Joyful Noise, and other musical theater favorites. She also replaced in The Mystery of Edwin Drood on Broadway and appeared in The Most Happy Fella, Oklahoma, Brigadoon, Carnival, and more at City Center, oftentimes collaborating with the original creative teams. She first made a splash off-Broadway, though, in Sing Muse, and appeared in the 1963 Boys from Syracuse, Alan J. Lerner's Music Music, and the songs of Jonathan Tunick there. As a regular Kenley Players star, her credits include Kiss Me Kate, Anything Goes, and Can Can. On TV, she has graced shows like Tabitha, Murder, She Wrote, Ed Sullivan, Jim Neighbors, Mike Douglas, Merv Griffin, David Frost, Good Heavens, Love American Style, and more with her presence. I hope you'll come back next week to hear the legendary Karen Morrow. Thank you for listening. <laughs>